Welcome to the Remission Biome Podcast, the only podcast on the internet where you hear from two science renegades that are trying to find out whether the microbiome is involved in remission from ME. Stay tuned to find out. In the intro episode, we introduce the intrepid and fearless science renegade. My name is Simon, and I'm excited to introduce Tamara and Tess. Could you uh, uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and why you decided to get involved with Remission Biome? In my past life, I was a tenured professor of biology at Dalhousie University, and intriguingly, very uh, in the years leading up to tenure and to my getting sick, I'd actually switched my research program. So previous to that, I'd been studying diversity stability relationships in ecosystems, um, mostly aquatic ecosystems. And then sort of right at that last few years, I started studying the human food web and the human microbiome and the effects of probiotics. So I was already really interested in this subject from an academic standpoint before I ended up getting hit the second time. So I was already interested in the microbiome, human food webs. I had a couple grad students that were working on the problem. I think we'd actually, I had had almost 10 honors thesis students at that time produce their, their papers on the human food, on human food webs. So I was really getting down that track. And I went on sabbatical in 2012. And I think I had a, an additional hit of dengue that year. So my very first MECFS was back in 2001, right at the very end of my PhD. And I got bit by an 80s Egypti mosquito doing field work in Jamaica. And I had a short-term self-limiting um, MECFS bout. It lasted for about two years, but I really relaxed and I got over it. And then this second hit 20 years later was what really did me in. I got sick pretty quickly and I got bedridden pretty quickly. So I went sort of from like moderate a couple years and then all of a sudden I was severe. And this had been a period of maybe almost a year and a half at this point where I'd been in a dark room 24 seven, almost no interaction, sliding very, very quickly, you know, into tube feeding. And I got this really horrible mouth abscess. And so I called my doctor, my normal doctor wasn't there. And so the substitute doctor prescribed amoxiclap, which my normal doctor wouldn't have done because we have a note on my file not to give me penicillins. Um, I've never had a reaction, but we have a family history of it. So it's just kind of like a safety thing. So turns out I took the amoxiclav for three days. And on the fourth day, I started taking some probiotics. And I took this drink, which was a mixture of MCT oil and ghee and BCAAs, branched-chain amino acids, and turmeric. I wasn't really eating much because I'd had this, you know, gross stuff happening in my mouth. 
So I think I, I think I was probably in ketosis. Well, within about an hour of drinking this drink, I entered this state where over a period of about 20 minutes, I went from dark room, headphones, not moving in bed, to out on my patio, hat came off, headphones came off, I grabbed the dog, I went running outside, I did snowflakes on the grass and it was it was just miraculous I I thought it potentially was a spiritual awakening because I started meditating soon before that and uh, but it was just miraculous and colors were brighter smells were incredible the gratitude was overwhelming I knew something was happening which was super normal and so I grabbed my iPhone and I actually video recorded the the entire come up and the entire state lasted for about four hours and then my sister came home I was already starting to come down I said to her this is what's happening and I think the veil is starting to come down again and within about 20 minutes of feeling like the remission event was resolving I was back in the dark room with the hat and I, I put my hat on again and my earphones and turned off the lights and, and, uh, and got into the, got into bed. So it was, mm-hmm. it was extremely vivid and overwhelming and saddening and in some ways scary because I knew something really, really incredible had happened either biochemically um, well, biochemically. Uh, so my name is Tess Failer, and I, my background is in aerospace engineering and planetary science. That was my career until 2020. Um, but I have gotten passionate about health and because of my own personal struggles. I, I first got sick in 2005 and with a mysterious illness that no doctors could figure out and that lasted for 15 years. Um, within that time, in about 2009, I got to the point where I was nearly bedbound. I was spending the majority of my day in bed and when I wasn't in bed, I was laying on the couch. And then I had what we refer to as a remission biome experience. and. What happened there is I was given antibiotics for H. pylori, so it was called a, a Prev pack, and it had amoxicillin and clarithromycin and a PPI. And I also started a gluten-free diet at the same time. And two days later, I woke up and I felt like a completely different person. I almost felt like I wasn't even in my body anymore because all of my pain and fatigue and burning muscles and brain fog was all completely gone. And I had I'd gotten so used to that at that point. It had been four years of being sick that I didn't even realize how sick I had actually gotten until it went away. And this happened, it was so sudden. It, I went to sleep on that second day of taking antibiotics, feeling like my really ill self. And um, 
then to me, since I was sleeping, it was kind of like a switch flipped in my, the consciousness I had of this illness because I, you know, I went to sleep feeling terrible, woke up, felt amazing. It was almost, it was even better than I had remembered feeling since I was a kid. I just had sort of boundless energy. I jumped out of bed and that lasted for two days where it was, it was amazing. I, in addition to having all my symptoms go away, it was, it was almost even, it was better than feeling normal. Like I know that what I felt those days wasn't how all healthy people feel all the time. You know, I had, it was almost like euphoria for some of it. I felt like colors were brighter and fragrances were stronger. I just felt this like extreme gratitude and just felt very present. When I describe it to people, the, some of the people who seem to understand those are people who say, oh, this is like just awakening. <laughs> like, this is like a spiritual experience. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've never had that. So I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, but on the, the second night of feeling this just miraculous change, I accidentally ate gluten. And I woke up the next day and was back in my old body. I barely could get out of bed again and just felt extreme fatigue. All the symptoms came back. So because of that, I thought it was the gluten-free diet that had caused this remission. And I started telling everybody I knew that they needed to go gluten-free and that this this was amazing. I knew celiac ran in my family, so it was like, this makes sense. And so for like 11 years after that, from 2009 to 2020, I felt way better than I did for those four years of being extremely sick and nearly bedbound. But in, in 2020, I started having issues again. And I ended up being diagnosed with um, hypermobility spectrum disorder and a bunch of other comorbidities that go along with it. And in that process, I found out about ME-CFS, so myalgic encephalomitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and came looked at the criteria for diagnosis, and I was like, okay, yeah, I meet these. Uh, I had never heard of post-exertional malaise before, which is one of the, the key symptoms of ME-CFS, which means that if you exert yourself, you get worse. It's not like you, you know, you can go to the gym and work out and keep getting stronger. And so I found out about MECFS and I decided to join Twitter because I was just trying to learn more about how, you know, the symptoms of it, try to connect with other, other people who had it. And so I joined Twitter in 2021 and I just loved it. I came across this amazing community of people who have MECFS and long COVID and hypermobility and all the other conditions that I have. So I started really bouncing science off of people on there. I found some really brilliant people who were sharing science about all these conditions. And in the fall of 2022, I had posted this thread about the evolutionary perspective of these conditions. And somebody retweeted it. Her name was Dr. T. And she, in the, when she retweeted it, she said, this is very similar to the model that I'm thinking. And she 
listed like five aspects of her, the model that she was thinking about. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I'm thinking too. And you seem to know the most about all these, this science. And I was just so excited to talk to her about the science part of it. And in the same thread, then she happened to bring up that she also had this remission from antibiotics. And so we, you know, we were already really connected on this, the science. And then all of a sudden we realized that, whoa, we both had this really wild experience that we haven't been able to really describe to other people because it was so bizarre and so intense. And all of a sudden we both had somebody that understood this experience. And it's, it, it's really hard to describe what that was like, finding somebody who really understood it. And then thinking more about this antibiotic connection and thinking, wow, could this have been the cause? And we, we almost like instantly became good friends. <laughs> uh, so we started talking a lot offline and uh, that sort of led to the plan for a remission biome. Yeah, that reminds me, I wanted you to introduce yourself. Yes. Can you tell uh, what your background is and how you found us? Uh, sure. So my background's uh, really wonky. I went to Ireland in 2017 to do a PhD at the University uh, College Cork, studying the ways that uh, the microbes in the gut affect the brain with a focus on glia and microbial metabolites. So basically I was trying to do a lot of cell culture and other experiments and I was having a lot of mental health difficulties and problems with my experiments. So things kept changing. Uh, that basically meant I had to uh, pivot what I was doing, read more papers, learn more about different parts of the microbiome, uh, different parts of health and disease and brain health. And eventually I left with a master's to focus on my mental health, but I did manage to publish several papers, one of which includes uh, me breaking down 200 something studies on the human microbiome, looking at different disease states and trying to see if, you know, uh, if a lot of these uh, articles agree with each other, if they don't, why don't they? I'm learning a lot about statistics and bioinformatics, so I could rerun the data using, uh, uh, using a better, more robust pipeline where we can be able to say for certain that, say, this microbe is increased in this condition. And of course, the results for most things is very hard to find specific microbes that replicate across studies. And also it's very important to look at the stuff that the microbes are farting out because they help us eat our food and then they fart out stuff. And because we've evolved with them for so long, our body just goes, okay, I guess this is my life. So we have receptors for all of the stuff that they fart out. And for things like the microglia and the astrocytes in the brain, they actually have receptors that recognize these farts. We're not sure how much of those parts get to the brain. Uh, we aren't really sure what the big overall effect is, but the bottom line is I learned how to be very careful when, you know, 
analyzing this kind of data so that you can rule out false positives, sloppy statistics, sloppy bioinformatics. Uh, so I later went into trying to start my own company. So now I'm a co-founder of Resolve, a mental health company that wants to make it easier for students in Canada to get mental health care, either through psychotherapy, peer support, faster access to psychiatrists. And we're also building up a library of resources. And I also kind of stumbled into science journalism and science writing. In grad school, I did a lot of science communication stuff like, you know, standing up in a pub and doing a comedy routine about my research, uh, how absurd the microbiome <laughs> is. Uh, and yeah, it was just it was just a good fit. I did one story for the Daily Beast about how a lot of disabled folks in Canada, those with uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, sometimes uh, EDS and other conditions are being forced into uh, medical assistance and dying because they really can't afford to live on the meager kinds of disabilities. Since then, I've been trying to pitch more of these kinds of stories to different outlets. And I saw some of the tweets uh, from uh, the Remission Biome Project. I sent a message uh, like, you know, I have some expertise here, happy to help, don't know how useful I'd be, but it just so happened that a lot of the stuff that uh, Tess and Tamara wanted to do, I had some experience with. Oh, podcasting, I have a yeah. mic and I have podcasting <laughs> software. Uh, microbiome, oh, luckily, I know how to analyze this stuff. Yeah. Microglia, oh, I tried yeah. to grow those. <laughs> so it, very, very kind of fortunate that I happen to know a little bit about a lot of what they're uh, talking about. And I have experience reading all of the papers, all of those mind-numbing academic papers. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm just hoping to follow along and help in any way I can. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we know the microbiome is this super complex system. A lot of people have been uh, trying to analyze it in the same way that we analyze ecological uh, systems. So there's been a lot of recent work on that with the idea of keystone species in the microbiome and other sorts of opportunists. But could you just talk a little bit about how you're essentially trying to kick your microbiome's ass so it gets back into gear and, uh, you know, potentially gives you another remission? So luckily, I had actually measured my microbiome three weeks prior to this event happening. I had ordered a, a whole bunch of test kits from a company that was around at the time. And so I had this pre-baseline sample. And so when the event occurred, I grabbed another test kit. And the next morning, first morning stool, I sampled and I sent the results in. And when I got them back, I sent them to Ken Lassison at Microbiome Remission. And he did a full analysis on my pre and event results. And unfortunately, the company ended up going out of business and there was some issue in terms of scientific validity. So yeah. 
I don't put a lot of stock in these results anymore, but one of the really interesting things that Ken found was that there was an explosion of valinella, a specific taxa of bacteria that is often found in athletes that are training at very high altitudes. And he proposed this hypothesis that the valinella might have been uh, consuming lactate, or it might have increased other species in terms of lactate consumption, and that that might have uh, led to the remission. I had a different hypothesis, and mine was surrounding tryptophan metabolism and yeah. the IDO metabolic trap. And I've talked before about how I got in touch with Robert Fair right after the event. I was kind of worried that the event could actually kick me down a couple notches when it first happened. And so I had my ex I had my ex postdoctoral supervisor actually contact Robert Fair because I really wanted right. to get him to answer me. And uh, Neo Martinez uh, was a is a network ecologist and very very well known. So I thought, oh, if he receives an email from him, he'll definitely read it. So he got in touch with me and we talked the whole thing through. And the first thing he told me was that it probably wasn't dangerous and I shouldn't worry about it happening again or getting worse. So that was really uh, that was really key for me. The second thing is that we were very fascinated about the time scale. It occurred on this four-hour time scale, which is essentially a digestion cycle. So it definitely sounded like the ingestion of the probiotics and the drink played a major role in what happened. Mm -hmm. Now it didn't fit with the IDO metabolic trap in terms of the actual theoretical predictions, because based on the trap model, it would actually take um, weeks to months to actually shift tryptophan metabolism in that way to cause the cascades that he was predicting. And they had been using HBOT, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, to try to do this to trip the trap. And they had found that it actually took months mm. of sort of slow progress uh, to achieve it. So the speed by which it came on and came off didn't make sense in terms right. of his particular model, but it made sense in terms of how fast bacteria grow and yes. how quickly bacterial metabolites can affect right. the system. So, you know, I, for, for a while after this happened, I was still bedridden, still severe, but within about six months I was walking again and I was no longer in bed and in a dark room. One of the biggest changes for me was that the really extreme environmental sensitivity, which so many people with ME-CFS experience, went away. So I no longer had to do dark classes, right. dark room. I no longer had to do the earphones. And just that changed my life because could walk around outside during the day or at least do a little bit more of that and I learned how to walk again and actually really started walking again at one point I was up to about a 20 to 30 minute walk per day um, phenomenal you know I never thought I would get back to that state so I'm just curious and I'm sure other people are curious as well uh, were all the people that had this experience uh, were they all women were there people that took antibiotics but didn't have this experience? 
And was there something there that gave you maybe a clue or an idea to research a little further? Yeah, so we first, we decided to reach out to people on um, Facebook, on some MECFS um, Facebook groups. And so I just did this post where I was like, you know, Tamara and I both had this wild experience from antibiotics. Has anyone else had a really dramatic, sudden improvement after taking antibiotics? We had a lot of people reply, and a lot of people were saying, yeah, you know, I felt almost normal when I took antibiotics. And then we had a few people come in that really seemed to understand what we were talking about. And we, I started messaging people and probably had about four or five from that thread. So that, that sort of opened our mind that like, whoa, maybe, maybe there really is something to this. But this was a group of about 20,000 people. So we are thinking this could be a rare event, but you can still learn from it. So go, your question about, you know, does this, does this happen to everyone? Definitely not. There's seems to be, you know, sort of three or four groups, the small number of people who have these really intense experiences like Tamara and I did, other people who just feel a bit better or like their baselines increase, but they don't have the really sudden dramatic remission. Some people feel worse after taking antibiotics. We have found some of those. And then, you know, some people just don't notice any difference. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I forget what your other question was. Yeah, I was just wondering where the majority of people with these experiences are uh, women. Oh, that yes. That is something that I'm, tr I'm trying to collect all these stories in one place. So I created a Google form, and I'm trying to get information yeah. from people. So off the top of my head, I can't tell you the numbers right now, but I feel like 90% of the people who had this experience are women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a large, I, I'll have to go look at the numbers later, but there's a large percentage of people with ME CFS are women. So, yes. Yeah. So it's hard to tell. Yeah. I, I want to look at the, the numbers and yeah. dig more into our stories. And uh, I'm just a little curious. Is there mm -hmm. like a part of you that's a little worried that when you run the experiment, you might? Uh, end up feeling worse after. Yeah, it's, it's a possibility. One of the reasons why we're not as afraid of that is because we've both taken antibiotics since then. So that's sort of another part of the story is that we've both taken antibiotics again, and this hasn't happened. But because we both have antibiotics multiple times since then, we're not as worried that they're going to cause us to feel worse because they haven't any other time. Right. But it's definitely a possibility. And, um, you know, like I told you, there are, we have found some people who do feel worse when, mm -hmm. after they take antibiotics. Yeah, there's a lot of differences across the full spectrum. And it looks like there's a lot of different things that are going on. So, mm -hmm. like, even if your experiment is successful, it might not bring the answers to everyone. But I guess what you're hoping to do is to set out a case study uh, and say, hey, look at all of this data. You should take a closer look and do a bigger study on this. Is that sort of Definitely. correct? 
That's correct. And, you know, thinking about that there could be a subset of people that the antibiotics work for. And by doing this study and looking at our data, could we understand more about the mechanisms so we could figure out what that subset is? And then also, I think with our ideas, the hypotheses of possible mechanisms, it's possible that, you know, we'll learn that neuroinflammation, say, for example, is common in people with ME-CFS, but it could be coming from other different causes for each person. So, you know, say, for example, it, that we find out it's our gut bacteria, that we right. have bad ba gut bacteria that are causing our problems. It could be that other people don't have the same cause. But if we learn a bit about the the neuroinflammation side or some of the mechanisms that really lead to the symptoms, it might still inform people in other subsets. And linking all of these remission stories together are the trillions of microorganisms living inside of our guts, a microbiome. So we ask, what the heck are they doing there anyways? And uh, in uh, uh, grad school, when I was looking at the microbiome in the brain, one of the tools I became familiar with, they're called uh, neuroactive gut metabolites. Basically, they're uh, a bunch of these bacteria. One thing people are focusing on now is rather than figuring out who they are, it's learning what they do. And a lot of these bacteria can generate... Uh, farts or molecules that basically affect our body and some of them if they reach the brain or nervous or any part of the nervous system uh, they can act as neurotransmitters so tryptophan metabolism is just one pathway that's happening in the gut there's a bunch of other potential metabolic pathways that could be happening alongside or on their own and there's just you know, an immense amount of complexity of what's occurring there. Absolutely. It's, it's an incredibly fascinating subject. And the, um, yeah, very interested in, in the AHR receptors and really digging into some of these tryptophan metabolites. Mm -hmm. And there's an incredible new database out there, which Tess and I actually used because we, we specifically looked at tryptophan pathways and the different types of bacteria that would actually tweak the specific tryptophan metabolite we were interested in. And then we traced it back and figured out, you know, who is making this bacteria? How could we access it? So it was, um, it was phenomenal. We wouldn't have been able to do that back in 2019 yeah. when I had my event. And I think the other complex thing we're learning is that some bacteria can do things sometimes, and sometimes they don't want to do that. So it could be like the same bacteria you had, all of a sudden they just decided, uh, turn on the Make Tomorrow Feel Good program for a few hours. The environmental conditions at the time are key, and that's one of the reasons why our protocol is so complex. I think people looking at what we're doing at Remission Biome are like, are a bit overwhelmed. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, you're using like 15 things to try to do this. And how are you going to tease it apart? The, the real key here is that 
we know that single interventions really don't end up having a lot of promise in most diseases. And when you're trying to do something as complex as what we're doing, and at least we have a, you know, a general theory about what we're trying to do, we actually want to throw the kitchen sink at it. So, you know, we're trying to get a specific result, which is the event. We think we know kind of how to get there, and but we think it depends on multiple pathways, you know, yep. including ketosis. So we're actually trying to get all of these birds lined up in a row, create the perfect conditions. And then, of course, there's immunogenetics, which is on top of it, which we really can't control. But interestingly enough, Tess and I have very similar genetics. We both have hypermobility or EDS. And so we're actually even looking for a geneticist right now who can do a direct yeah. comparison of our genomes because both of us have done WGS sequencing. So that will be a possibility in our case. You know, who knows? There could actually be some genetic markers associated with our HLA, which come into this entire play. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but there's a recent uh, study that looked across different uh, types of, you know, respiratory infections, finding that these infections may increase the risk of developing certain disorders uh, in the future, such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, the whole viral hypothesis where the idea is you have uh, HPV or another virus that sort of gets nice and cozy inside of your brain cells, goes to sleep, and then something happens. Either you get sick or maybe you get injured or something else, and all of a sudden the virus wakes up, goes, what the hell, and starts mm -hmm. uh, wreaking some havoc. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know, I can't speak for tomorrow, but I know I've had Epstein-Barr um, reactivate in the past. Right. So, yeah, and, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. It took uh, a really long time and a really large study for scientists to finally show that Epstein-Barr virus is the cause, uh, the most common cause for multiple uh, sclerosis in a yeah. large group of people. So yeah, even that... if that's what's going on, it, it takes a lot of research and a lot of funding to kind of get to the point where you can prove it. Yeah, that was an amazing study. I, I read that paper and the huge cohort they had for that, you know, I think it was, was it military yes. service members that had regular checkups? So they had these blood, their blood drawn I think maybe it was like every two years or something. It's just, I, I wish that we could use that data set to look at MECFS. Right. Uh, the problem, of course, with MECFS is that uh, it's still dismissed by a lot of doctors and practitioners. It's barely funded compared mm -hmm. to anything else. Like in Canada, uh, the spending is about uh, $3 for <laughs> every person that has MECFS, which isn't, wow. you know, a lot of money. So it doesn't draw in researchers. It mm. doesn't give them, you know, a place where they can get grants and actually thrive. Uh, and then there's the problem with patients being disbelieved. And there's a whole, whole history of uh, women being called hysterical, uh, women getting like 
you know, oh yeah, all those problems are just because, you know, you're a woman, you probably don't know what's going on, uh, that kind of thing. A lot of people still experience condescension from their healthcare professionals, which makes it really hard to, you know, study this phenomenon. Yeah, yeah there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> uh, thinking about, well, for the, the fact that it's not really well understood and likely very underdiagnosed. I did wonder when I was thinking about that MS, um, the, the, um, the cohort there, would they have even been accurately diagnosed with ME-CFS or would all those people, we, we know a certain percentage of them likely ended up with ME-CFS, but would it even show in their records? Right. I'm guessing not <laughs> that you would you would miss a, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think MECFS is extremely underdiagnosed. A lot of doctors don't even know about it. I have some MD friends where it took me a long time to sort of come out and say that I had MECFS. And when I did, I had some friends say, oh, what's that? And they're MDs. And I had to really explain it to them and hope that they now know about it and can diagnose people. But it's so either people don't know about it it's or it's so stigmatized. And like you said, yeah. just assume that it's psychological and uh, yeah, hysterical. I think you kind of also run into the problem where if you're already a healthy person uh, and you want to live forever, it's just biohacking it's perfectly normal if you want to have the body of an 18 year old just like your son um not creepy at all uh definitely a recent news story but if you're if you're uh, chronically ill and you know you're trying to get your doctor to believe you or you're trying to ask for help and they're not willing to help or prescribe you things and you go off on your own to do cis and science it becomes irresponsible so it's it's always sort of this uh, double-sided sword that you're teetering on between oh you're you're just a crank doing it on your own, whereas if you were perfectly healthy, people would be like oh hey this is so cool. Absolutely, I mean, I've been doing biohacking before you know before illness, and uh, and I've done lots of biohacking during illness. Uh, including use of peptides and things that are considered a little bit uh, a little bit gray, so it's an area that fascinates me. I I actually got my my latest blood test results back from Inside Tracker this morning, and Inside Tracker is one of these home companies that uh, you send in a blood sample and they do a very thorough analysis on it. Unfortunately, my inner age calculation in my latest blood test was fifty three point two, and that is 3.2, 3.1 years older than mm. my chronological age. So it's really important to me. Um, the tracking is really important. These um, biohacking is really important. You know, being sick is incredibly hard, but you have to work. Um, if you don't work to make your life better while you're chronically ill, you will decline. And that's a given. So, yeah, we need we need help. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit messed up because you know you have to do it yourself. 
It's kind of like in the Avengers when Thanos is like, fine, I'll do it myself. When you're kind of sick and tired of, you know, not getting the care you need, not being able to, you know, make yourself better. It's it's the response you go for, which is, fuck this, we're going to make this work. And that's what I think is really cool about Remission Bio. Yeah, thank you. It's one of the things that excites us the most is really we're creating a community of people who have a common goal. We're all working towards that goal together. We're exchanging information. We're bringing in experts. We're tweaking the program. But we're actually creating something that we can use almost as a, you know, um, as like a clinical community project because, you know, it's nothing like this exists in treatment so we're creating our own treatment intervention community but yeah that that sounds uh that sounds very interesting uh and uh could you uh kind of touch on how many different types of people have offered to help across different stages of the experiment and data analysis so many I should start a list of everybody. I'm guessing, well, all the scientists we've talked to who have given us input about the hypotheses and about our protocol, I'm guessing 25, maybe. Yeah. You know, some of those have been more, um, they spent more time with us, like you, sitting down for Zoom meetings. Other ones have just sent me DMs with ideas for other tasks or things, papers to look into. So yeah, we have this, we have the scientists and the clinicians that we've talked to with everybody has just been so excited, I think about what we're doing and really want to help us. Then all these companies that are providing us free tests, it's, it's been amazing. Um, I'm guessing 90% of the companies that we reached out to said, yes, I will send you free kits or give you a large discount. So that's been surprising too. Um, I wouldn't have really expected that before we started this process, but Tamara just decided to start reaching out to companies and Biomesite was our, our first sponsor. They sent us a few kits each and that sort of gave, the, gave us the confidence to reach out to more companies. So this whole project has just grown organically, which has been really fun. It's kind of like we started off with just this simple idea that Tamara and I are going to take antibiotics and see what happens. And then we started getting some of these sponsors, started getting a lot more ideas from people. And then we, we really wanted to get these lactate monitors, which are these at-home tests. Um, and so I, I um, tweeted saying, well, could anybody help us out with this? You were like, we can't get a hold of this company, so we can't get this as a sponsor, but it could be a critical um, information for us during our test. And I had a guy reach out to me and said, yeah, I can, I can buy those for you. And, you know, they're not cheap. So it, again, gave us, gave us more confidence that people really want to help us out with this. And we had some people suggest doing a GoFundMe. 
So like none of this has been planned. It's just been ideas from people in the community, people suggesting things to us where we're like, okay, yeah, that's, that sounds like a cool idea. So let's start a GoFundMe. And then next thing we know, we have $11,000 from people, 70, I think it was 77 people have donated so far. Right. And now is the experiment then basically uh, you and Tamara take antibiotics and then a bunch of other stuff that's mm -hmm. meant to, you know, push around the microbiome, do mm -hmm. stuff to uh, your immune system, metabolites that do other random things everywhere and just kind of see what happens. Yeah. And so there's the part of it of trying to push the system. And then we're also sort of trying to prevent our microbiomes from being completely decimated. So we're taking some probiotics just as sort of keep that system going, <laughs> keep it, you know, keep it okay. I'm not sure how to put it. Um, but as far as the ones that we're trying to nudge the system with, we'll take the antibiotics first. And if we don't get a remission within a few days, then we'll start adding things one at a time. Mm -hmm. So we can sort of tease out, could this combination have caused a remission if we get one, um, instead of throwing all of them at the same time, which you can make an argument for, for doing that too, just to prove that it could be done. Yeah, it's like doing uh, regression. There's different kinds of mm -hmm. uh, regression for your statistics. You can do it with one variable. You can do it with mm -hmm. multiple variables. <laughs> Lots of fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think, I, I think this is uh, quite a bit that we have in order to create uh, the prequel, episode one, if you will, of the remission mm. biome saga, where we cover the origins of our two brave protagonists. We define the enemy, so to speak, and we document, we, we document the struggle. Holy remission biome, Batman. So since recording this, Tess and Tamara have decided that rather than taking all of these interventions one by one they're gonna take them all together because they believe they'll have the best chance of making sure that this succeeds mm -hmm. so if uh any billionaires are listening to this our pockets are wide open if you donate now we'll include a free collection of science themed puns that's right you can be the owner of several science and shit themed puns. So donate now. <laughs>